Chapter 10 of The Wife of the Secretary of State. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Wife of the Secretary of State by Ella Middleton Tybout. Chapter 10. Senator Byrd was giving a dinner and was conscious that it dragged heavily. As the guests were carefully selected, food and wine unexceptionable, and the serving beyond criticism, the senator was puzzled. The Secretary of State had arrived alone, bearing Mrs. Redmond's apologies. She was prostrated by a severe headache and quite unable to be present. The on Cecil Lyndhurst, for whom the dinner was given, had been unexpectedly unaccountably late, and had not, in the senator's opinion, offered good and sufficient reason for this breach of etiquette. Then, too, Isabel added to her father's annoyance by not appearing until after dinner was announced, wearing a gown of which he had expressed emphatic disapproval, and subsiding into utter silence as she took her place between Monsieur Dupre and Mr. Rivers. The senator's brows darkened as he observed the listless manner of his daughter and the forced animation of his guests. He liked conversation at his dinners to be spontaneous and laughter genuine, and could detect the real article immediately. Mrs. Chesley, at the head of the table, was totally unconscious of her brother's chagrin. To her the dinner was much like many others. Her purple velvet was highly satisfactory, and the canvas-backs cooked to a turn. What more could be desired? Therefore, when she felt his eye fixed upon her, she returned his gaze of gloomy disapproval with a smile so vapid and vacuous that it proved the last straw to the harassed senator. Bestowing a frown upon his innocent sister, which caused her to drop her fork in astonishment, he turned hastily to the lady on his right, and endeavoured to sustain his reputation of a genial and delightful host. But she was afterwards heard to remark that she had rarely been so bored, and considered Senator Byrd a much overrated person. Monsieur Dupre and Mr. Rivers only were affected by the depressed atmosphere. The former was making a very substantial meal indeed, and the latter seemed exhilarated but self-absorbed. After one or two unsuccessful attempts to engage Isabel in conversation, he relapsed into a preoccupied silence, totally oblivious of his other neighbour, who finally turned her white shoulder very markedly towards him and pointedly ignored his proximity. And now, Mr. Lyndhurst, remarked Mrs. Chesley, in the patronizing manner a certain type of person usually adopts towards a foreigner, what is your opinion of Washington? I have found it altogether delightful, Mrs. Chesley. Of course, she resumed, helping herself to salted almonds. You have been to the capital. How do our House and Senate compare with your Parliament? for instance. 
What particularly impressed me with the House of Representatives, interrupted Monsieur de Prey, is the freedom of speech permitted its members. All men are born free and equal, responded Mr. Rivers, rousing himself abruptly. That is our declaration, you know. I went down there, continued Monsieur de Prey discursively, to listen to a debate. I found two gentlemen gesticulating and both talking at once. They grew more irate every moment, and finally one shook his fist at the other. I thought pistols imminent, and felt sure the friendship of a lifetime was irrevocably broken, for I had often seen them together. I thought how sad it was such things could happen. Then, what followed? As I left the capital that afternoon, I saw the same two gentlemen strolling down the steps before me, arm in arm. They laughed and chatted, evidently in the best of spirits, and made an engagement to dine together that evening. I have the good fortune to know one of them, so I approached him after they had separated, and expressed my pleasure that the breach was so quickly healed. Well, said Mr. Rivers, as the little Frenchman paused for breath, what then? He looked at me in astonishment, and inquired what I meant. I explained that I had been in the diplomatic gallery of the house that afternoon, and had heard with sorrow the bitter dispute. He immediately drew himself up very tall and erect, and looked over my head. I vote and argue for the good of my district, he said very stiffly, but by gad, sir, I choose my own friends. And that, said Senator Byrd, laughing, is a privilege claimed by most men, I believe, regardless of country. Mrs. Chesley shook her head doubtfully, as though she could dispute this point if she desired, and admired her rings as they caught the light. She thought she might perhaps have added the hoop of rubies after all, without overloading her fingers. Isabel played with her fork, sending course after course away untouched, and was plainly relieved when dinner came to an end and she could retire to the piano in the drawing-room, whither Lyndhurst speedily followed. Isabel was playing softly her red-gold hair gleaming under the chandelier, and her grey eyes persistently lowered. The young Englishman watched her in silence. Fate had thrown them frequently together since Mrs. Redmond's ball, and this particular type of American continued to interest him greatly. "'There is something on your gown,' he exclaimed suddenly. "'Allow me.' Taking out his handkerchief, he brushed her skirt lightly. The black spot on its gauzy, pale blue surface remained unchanged, and a hasty movement on her part disclosed another and larger discoloured place at the edge of her satin petticoat. Dropping his handkerchief, he touched it with his finger, then glanced up quickly, the skirt was stained by mud and water, and still very wet. 
Isabel twitched it from him and brought her hands down upon the keys tumultuously. Yes, it's wet, she said defiantly, as though challenging inquiry. The on Cecil was puzzled. The girl was evidently excited, as her unnaturally bright eyes and the color which came and went so fitfully indisputably demonstrated. Also, he believed, she was not far from a nervous collapse. He had sisters of his own, and knew there were times when very deft handling is necessary if one would avoid trouble. So he stroked his fair moustache affectionately and reflected carefully before speaking. There's a jolly little room at the head of the stairs, he remarked suggestively at last. I noticed it as I came in. It is very nice and quiet, and the chairs looked uncommonly comfortable. My sitting-room, said Isabel with a gasp of relief. Yes, let us go there. Miss Bird, he said quietly, as they entered the room and he drew forward a low chair. Will you not have a glass of wine? You ate no dinner. I sat opposite, you know. Isabel swept her skirts about her with a hasty movement, which brought the wet spot again into prominence. It was horrid of you to notice it, she said petulantly. Horrid! I beg your pardon, he apologized contritely. I did not mean to vex you. But Isabel was not yet appeased. Look at that muddy place on your shoe, she continued reproachfully. I saw it, but I did not think it necessary to call the attention of the whole room to it, and there is some on your cuff, too. It was quite true. Upon the heel of his patent leather shoe, freshly dried mud was thickly plastered. Also a large spot marred the underside of an otherwise immaculate cuff. It's just as black as the place on my skirt, continued Isabel, who evidently agreed with the theory that the best mode of defence is by attack. And perhaps you don't know it. There is quite a long splash on the back of your coat. The servants should have brushed you, of course, but I suppose you came so late they had not time. The on Cecil gravely examined his cuff. They do match, don't they? he remarked, pleasantly, comparing it with the stain on her skirt. On the whole, she resumed triumphantly, on the whole, Mr. Lyndhurst, you are more spotted than I. Isabel touched her skirt gingerly. I think it is drying a little, don't you? she inquired anxiously. A ripple of laughter from the drawing-room floated up the stairs, and a servant entered with a tray containing small cups of black coffee. Isabel took one and drank it eagerly, while her companion, holding his cup in her hand, toyed absently with the spoon and watched her. His eyes were troubled as well as puzzled, and, notwithstanding the composure of his manner, it was evident he was holding himself well in hand. You see, said Isabel, with an effort, just before dinner, after I was dressed and ready, I heard of a friend who was in trouble, and, of course, I wanted to help it. 
and I did not want anyone to know, and now this horrid stain, and everything. I hope, he said gently, you were able to assist your friend. No, she replied with a shake of the head. That's just it. I didn't help at all. I fear I did harm by going. But I meant well. Her voice shook slightly in spite of her effort to control it, and she pushed her cup aside on the small table beside her and groped vainly for her handkerchief. I wish you'd look the other way, she exclaimed impatiently. I hate to be stared at. The Aunt Cecil was conscious that he could not hold himself quite as well in check as he had believed. He felt a sudden and irresistible desire to put his arm about the slender figure and wipe the tears from the long lashes. He took her hand in both of his, and her hair brushed against his cheek as he stooped over her. Don't cry, he whispered. It hurts me. Don't cry, Isabel. Isabel rolled her handkerchief into a moist little ball and rose suddenly. I think I ought to tell you, she said with a little laugh, which was half a sob, that this afternoon Mr. Rivers asked me to marry him, and I said I would. I thought you might be interested. He released her hand and straightened himself suddenly. I congratulate you, he said slowly. You were right. I am interested. It will be quite a long engagement, she continued, her fingers nervously interlocked. A year, I hope. I mean, of course, I hope the wedding will be in a year's time, but then one can never tell what may happen. I congratulate you, he said again. Mr. Rivers is a very brilliant man. I have heard him mentioned as a possible member of the next cabinet. Yes, she said, I know. And father is pleased, too. They are friends, although Mr. Rivers is much younger. Shall we return to the drawing-room? And Mr. Lyndhurst? Yes, Miss Bird. Please forget how foolish I have been to-night. I am very well, and of course very happy. I was a little nervous, I think, and I fear I was rude when you only meant to be kind. Please forgive me, and please also forget everything, will you? There is nothing to remember, Miss Bird, except what you have just told me. The guests were preparing to take their leave as they returned to the drawing-room, and Isabel, with some compunctions of conscience, endeavoured to perform a few neglected duties in regard to entertaining her father's friends. The Secretary of State was the first to depart. He drew her aside with a whispered word of congratulation and watched her face keenly as they talked. Your father told me, he said, and I want to be the first to wish you the happiness you deserve. I was astonished, Isabel. You have kept your friends completely in the dark, my dear. He stooped and kissed her forehead, taking her face between his hands and looking earnestly into her grey eyes. God bless you, my dear, he said gently. May you be as happy as Estelle and I. There can be no better fortune in life for you than that. Good night. The secretary drove quickly home through the wet streets 
and went at once to Mrs. Redmond's dressing-room. She half rose from the couch as he approached, and held out both hands in welcome. "'It's perfectly absurd, of course,' she said, with a little laugh. "'But when you go anywhere without me, I'm wretched until you come back.' The flowing lace sleeve of her white dressing-gown fell away from her rounded arm, with its faint tracery of blue veins. The secretary liked to follow their course with the tip of his finger, and also to hold the small white hand which wore the plain gold band, and lay so willingly in his. "'Was the evening very long?' he inquired tenderly. "'Poor little girl! And how is the head?' "'It is really better, John. Almost well, in fact. Tell me about the dinner. I was especially sorry not to go with you tonight. Well, he returned reflectively, you did not miss very much. It was deadly dull, absolutely the only stupid dinner I ever knew bird to give. Tell me who was there and all about it. So he told her all the little details he knew she wished to hear, and she listened attentively occasionally laughing at some anecdote or interrupting with some trivial question, while outside the wind increased in violence and rain splashed against the windows, running down the panes in little rivers and forming small ponds upon the stone sill, thus accentuating the warmth and colour of the rose-tinted room. He pressed his cheek to hers as he spoke, but started in astonishment. "'Why, Estelle!' he exclaimed, rapidly passing his hand over her head. "'Your hair is wet!' Mrs. Redmond sat suddenly upright and pushed aside his hand. Her breath came quickly, and a round red spot glowed on either cheek. "'Don't, John,' she said wearily. My head is very sensitive. Please don't touch it. But see, he returned, holding out his hand for her inspection. Only see how wet my fingers are. Mrs. Redmond took the hand in both of hers and laid her cheek against it. You dear old silly, she said languidly. My head was so hot and ached so badly, I had Josephine put crushed ice on it. I was too vain to let you see me tied up in a towel, so I took it off when I heard you coming. But of course my hair is wet." The secretary smiled indulgently, and returned to the subject of Isabel Bird's engagement. Mrs. Redmond sat back again upon the couch and listened quietly with closed eyes. "'By the way,' he said reflectively, "'isn't it about time we entertained Lyndhurst? The lace upon the bosom of her gown moved suddenly, and a pause ensued. "'He has been here, dear,' she said at last. "'You forget the ball.' "'But that is not enough,' he objected, rolling the end of the ribbon at her waist about his fingers, and slowly smoothing it out again. "'We must give a dinner for him and ask the other diplomats. We should have done so before this.' "'All of them, John?' "'Estelle!' he exclaimed, laughing. "'I believe you are getting lazy. For the first time since our marriage you are shirking responsibility.' 
I dislike the English, said Mrs. Redmond, in general condemnation. As a rule, they are so stolid and heavy, they remind me of underdone bread. Well, returned the secretary, relinquishing the ribbon, I admit this young fellow attracts me. There is nothing stolid about him, I assure you. On the contrary, he is remarkably alert. I have met him officially, as well as socially, of course, and I think you will like him when you know him. Mrs. Redmond pushed aside the heavy hair which had fallen over her forehead and turned her face away from the light. We will have the dinner, dear, she said gently, and invite the whole diplomatic corps, if you say so. I think a large affair would be best, don't you? I will leave it entirely to you, he replied. I know I am in safe hands, although they are very small to be so capable. The secretary was much given to such old-fashioned gallantries. Although he had been married five years, he was as much in love with his wife as the day he had gone with her to the little church in Paris and placed upon her finger the small golden band. End of chapter 10